0: Amen. So if you were merely skimming through your Bibles, or perhaps you just opened to a random gospel passage, and you found yourself in the beginning verses of the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel, it's not all that likely that it was going to just jump off the page at you. You know, it's tucked away there on the heels of just some tremendous miracles, the calming of the storm at sea, cleansing a man with many demons, healing a woman with a 12-year bleeding problem, raising a 12-year-old little girl from the dead, from the dead. and then just after this, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water, so it, it would be understandable if you were to find yourself in this passage and just skim on right by it, just, just read it and never get it, give it any more thought. And I think that's in part why it's so important that we study God's word the way that we do. Just marching straight through books of the Bible. Because otherwise we would have missed out on this tremendous text. It's a real turning point. It's an important moment in, in Jesus' earthly ministry. And so I, I think it may do us well at this point. We are now... We're now about eight and a half months into our study of Mark's gospel, and so it may do us well to kind of step back and, and look down on, on what we've seen so far. Just a 10,000 foot view of, of what's happened and what leads us up to this morning's text. And in moments like this, this is where we're so very thankful for the, the multiple gospel records because God allows us to see what's happened from different angles and to really, to really round out the picture and some of the things that he, he didn't see fit to reveal to us, he didn't see fit to reveal to us through Mark. And so you'll remember that just before the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he went out and he met John the Baptist there at the Jordan River and he was, he was baptized by him there. And then immediately from there he was led out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he fasted and was, was tempted by the devil. And then as he spent some time there in and around the area of the jordan john the baptist was consistently pointing his disciples towards jesus saying i'm I'm not even fit to touch his foot not even fit to undo a strap on his sandal behold the lamb of god that comes to take away the sins of the world and some people did They, they followed after jesus they left john and they they followed after jesus and then jesus went to cana in galilee and he performed his first his first recorded public miracle there is he turned the water into wine. And then he returned back up to, back up to Capernaum for just a, just a moment before then heading back south to Jerusalem for the Passover. And you may remember from all those months ago that we talked about the fact that the Passovers are, are, are really critical time markers for us in Jesus' ministry. Part of the reason that we believe that Jesus' earthly ministry lasted just over three years was the fact that it appears to have spanned over the course of four Passovers. So we read about the first one there in John 2. It was the first Passover, and as a as a good Jewish man, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And you remember that it was there that he had that interaction with a man named Nicodemus, but, but the pressure began to increase because as Jesus' teaching and preaching and, and just word of what he was doing was spreading, the, the pressure was increasing from the religious establishment. And it wasn't yet time for Jesus to lay down his life. And so he was going to leave there in and, and, and the religious hub of the Israel... Uh, uh, of the Israel na- Israelite nation, and he was going to head back up north into Galilee. And then along the way, along the way up north, you'll remember that he stopped in Samaria, and he met a woman there by a well, a Samaritan woman. And it was there that he revealed to us that his father doesn't, he doesn't care about the places that we worship necessarily, or the styles in which we worship. This father desires worship in spirit and in truth. And by coming to this woman, this outsider, this Samaritan, he showed us the kinds of people that he came to save, the kinds of people that he came to interact with. And then we read about in John 4, there was another, there's a hint of another Passover there. And so this would indicate that we're now at the end of Jesus' first full year of earthly ministry. And then John the Baptist is arrested, and then we came at that point. All of that happened, and then we came to Mark 1.14. We're only 14 verses into Mark. And that's where we read. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. repent and believe in the gospel. This was the beginning of his Galilean ministry that he would spend there um, in, in Capernaum peter's hometown that that would become his home base of sorts for almost the next year, this place on the on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee that he would he'd routinely return there and do miracles around there and depart from there and then and then come back but but before he really began his Capernaum, his, his Galilean ministry in earnest, before the healing and the preaching and the teaching really took off at full force, he made a trip back home to Nazareth, to his hometown. And we read about that in Luke 4. And so what archaeologists tell us about, about Nazareth, it's about 25 miles south by southwest of, of Capernaum. And Nazareth was, as best they can tell, it was a tiny town. It was only like 60 acres in total landmass, something like that. The people lived in these earthen homes that were, were kind of set into the, into the side of the hill there. And as best they can tell, the total population of Nazareth was something like 500 people. Now on a good, healthy Sunday morning, we have 500 people, more than 500 people on campus here. That was the total population of this town of Nazareth. You won't find any reference to Nazareth in the Old Testament Jewish historians like Josephus, they don't make any reference to it. it. It is truly accurate to say that Jesus Christ came from a nowhere town, a town that wasn't, wasn't on anybody's map. There wasn't any, wasn't any anticipation. Anything great was going to come out of Nazareth. And then he, he returned there But before the beginning of his, of his Galilean ministry. And Luke 4 says that, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up, and he began to read. And what he read out of the scroll was Isaiah 61. He read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the lord's favor then he sets the scroll back to the attendant mic drop sits down he says behold before your eyes this has been fulfilled making clear that's about me but before he can begin even teaching he recognizes these people don't want this they want signs and miracles they want me to amaze them. So recognizing this, he tells them that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown and the people won't hear it. So they take him out to the edge of the hill and they prepare to throw him down to his death. But Jesus, he just passes all the way right, right on through. And he went away. And then everything that we've read from that point to this, right? This, this just robust ministry, the incredible things that Jesus has been doing. And now he comes to the end of his Galilean ministry and he's going to make one more trip back home. Now, there's some people that believe that was the same trip, but it doesn't play out that way in the scripture. I think it's pretty clear that this was, a, this was a bookend of his Galilean ministry, one with a visit home and now another with a visit home. So go ahead and stand to your feet as we turn to the sixth chapter in Mark's gospel. Let's see how this trip goes, see if it goes any differently than the last. Beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. All God's people said, amen. Father God, we want to be good hearers of your word. It is our desire to rightly hear and understand and be transformed by your word. Would you do that now? Would you give us supernatural hearing, spiritual ears that rightly hear and receive and believe your word? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So immediately following the raising of Jairus' Jairus' daughter from the dead, Jesus and his disciples, they headed to Nazareth. Now, if Jesus' first ministry, we we could, I guess in theory, say that his first first visit to uh, Nazareth was a personal visit. This one most certainly was not. If he returns again in the middle of this robust ministry, carrying with him his disciples. He was here on business. He was here for a a great purpose, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. This was his normal practice. In that day and age, any qualified man was welcome to stand up in the synagogue and teach and speak and read. And Jesus, as we've said numerous times, was recognized as a rabbi. And so it would have been perfectly natural and normal for them to allow him to come in and speak. And now, unlike his first trip to, to the synagogue there in Nazareth, we're not told what he taught. We don't know exactly what he read. We don't recognize the, we're not given the, the specific words that, words that he had to speak to them. But this does mark, as I've told you, a, a turning point. Because from this point forward, we will not read in Mark's gospel about Jesus teaching in the synagogues. He's going to move away from these religious centers and out to the common people. He's going to be doing most, most of his teaching from this point forward. In homes and out, out amongst the people. No longer there with the religious establishment verse 2 continued and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things what is the wisdom given to him how are such mighty works done by his hand whatever Jesus taught the people were blown away Now you may recall that news not just of Jesus teaching but as of his healing and his miracles it had reached his hometown and that was why his family had come to, to drag him away they determined no longer is he gonna sully this family's good name or get himself killed we're gonna go and even if it even if it's against his will we're going to drag him home. Clearly, Jesus would have been the talk of this 500 person town. He was the talk of all of Israel. He had been doing these remarkable things. And so the people were amazed. The people were always amazed. They were always astonished. Whenever people heard of Jesus' works, whenever people heard Jesus' teaching, they were always floored. Even from childhood, even as a boy, you remember that as Jesus' family took him, took him into Jerusalem, and they left. They departed, and they, they thought, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. He, they, they thought he was with other family members. They left him there at the church house. They left him in the temple. And so the Scripture tells us what happens in, in Luke 2 as they turn around and go back to find him. In Luke 2, 46 through 48, after three days, three days they're looking for this baby. Three days they found him sitting in the temple. Not really a baby; he was twelve. But three days they found him sitting in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw this, they too were astonished. Or Mark one twenty two, as he taught in a synagogue in Capernaum, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Mark seven thirty eight, after he heals a deaf man. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Mark eleven eighteen. 18, He's cleansed the temple for the second time. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy Him. For they feared Him, because all the crowd was astonished at His teaching. Matthew twenty two thirty three. after He taught about the resurrection. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. It's just a small sample. But everywhere there had never had been a teacher before or after like Jesus Christ. He did things that nobody had ever done. He taught in ways with authority that nobody had ever possessed. So everywhere that he went, the people were astonished. The word there is expresso. The the root word there, plesso, means to strike. Jesus' works and Jesus' words, it struck them right between the eyes. And they were amazed. They were astonished. But amazement and astonishment is a far cry short of salvation. It's a far cry short of repentance and trust and belief. But everywhere that Jesus went, these people were blown away. And look at their response. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The people were more concerned with figuring out where he got this knowledge and how he did these miracles than figuring out what his message meant and how they needed to respond. They wanted to know the where and the how. They didn't want to know how that affected them. They didn't want to know what that said about them. They didn't want to know how they were meant to respond to him because Jesus didn't have the right credentials. In that place, in that time, you gain credentials by hanging out with the right rabbis, by studying under the right teachers, and Jesus hadn't done that. And then these miracles, the healing and the raising from the dead, these, these things had just never been done before. And so they wanted to know why because a faithful heart, they come into contact with Jesus, they hear about his works, they hear his words, and they just fall down at his feet and worship. But a heart filled with doubt, and pride and self because jesus doesn't match up with our own experiences with our own expectations with our own emotions we demand answers and so the questions they ask it's a lot like the pharisees you remember that that the religious leaders as they saw jesus healing and performing miracles what do they say well he does it by the power of beelzebub it's only by the power of satan that he casts out demons and then when they hear about his teaching listen in mark 11 27 through 28 Again, after he's cleansed the temple for the second time, they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Who gave you the right, Jesus? Who do you think you are? But since his birth, all things had been announcing who he was. You remember this? Angels? Stars? Shepherds? In his baptism, his father himself, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And even at the root of his teaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He was announcing, the king is here. That's how the kingdom is here. I am the king. I am the Christ. And then in reading scrolls like Isaiah and saying, this is before your eyes today, right now. He left him without excuse of knowing who he was and under what authority he did these things and said these things. But a hardened heart isn't going to receive this. You can't, they couldn't get past their own paradigm. They didn't want to receive this. They didn't want to believe that he was who he said he was. That he did the things that he did under the power of God. And so they rejected it. He didn't meet their expectations, so he rejected it. So it was only the desperate people. It was only the people that knew they were on the outside looking in. That knew that they had nothing to offer to the kingdom of God. knew that they were desperate they heard the message of jesus christ they heard about the wonders that he did they knew that they were lacking and that he had everything that they needed and so they sought him out they didn't care how they didn't care how they didn't care if he healed by a word or by a touch or by the hem of his garment i don't care you've got what i need something no one else has and so i come to you and then they hear his voice they hear his calling Like the woman with the bleeding, she falls down at his feet. She confesses everything at that moment. I don't care care how you got these words, Jesus. They're life. I don't care how you do these miracles. I surrender to you now, but these people will not. Again, there were exceptions. Like the Pharisee Nicodemus. You remember that as he meets with Jesus, he says, no one can do these things. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Clearly, he knew he was son of the Most High God. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did, he ma- where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? As we talked about back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, Mary had other children. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she was not with her husband until Jesus was born, but she did not remain a virgin. She had other children, multiple other children. And we talked about the fact that these younger siblings of Jesus, they thought he was crazy. Mary may have been the only believer in all of Nazareth. She had to know because the angel Gabriel had come and told her. She knew that she had been faithful. She knew that she... That there was no reason for her to be pregnant apart from exactly what God had revealed to her was happened. She knew, but her brothers they thought he was. But his brothers they thought he was crazy, and, and the Gospels tell us that plainly. John seven, Jesus' own brothers did not believe him, and I will say it had to have been hard. Your brothers perfect, and I don't mean like earthly perfect, like captain of the football team, straight A's. This isn't like Jan going, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. This isn't. This is like real deal perfect, like without blemish, perfect. And he had to have been his parents' favorite. How could he not be? He was perfect. And they knew the circumstances around his, around his birth. So there had to have been great resentment within his brothers. They didn't, they didn't believe. It wasn't until the ascension. It wasn't until Jesus' death and burial, his resurrection, and his going back to the Father that we find his brothers there in Acts 1. They're, they're in the upper room with Mary and the other, the other believers. And we're not told a whole lot. I don't know that we're told anything about Jesus' sisters, and we don't know much about Joseph or Joseph as Matthew, Matthew calls him, and we don't not about Simon, but we do know about James and Judas. We know from the book of Acts that that James was the leader in the in the church there at Jerusalem. And then as we read the, as we read the letter that, that bears his name, as he's writing about his brother, he refers to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Pretty big shift. And then his brother Judas became, became to be known as Jude, I would assume, as a way to separate him from Iscariot, the traitor. But we read about him in the letter towards the, end of our, towards the end of our Bibles that bears his name as he refers to himself as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. It's seen the risen Christ. Life had changed for them. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, they had come to believe. But as of this moment right here, this morning's text, they were just as skeptical as all the rest of Nazareth. How can you do these things and how can you say these things? Aren't these your brothers? Isn't this your family? Don't we know these people? Isn't he the son of Mary? That's an interesting way to say that. Even in American culture, you think about when two people get married, what happens? The woman takes the man's last name. Or if you look at the genealogies throughout the Old Testament or the ones that we find in the Gospels, it's always referring to who is the son of who. We, we read about David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Or we read about Peter, Simon bar Jonah, Simon, the son of Jonah. You refer to somebody as the son of a man. You almost never referred to them as the son of a woman, so why would they do this? Some people say that it was because Joseph was already dead, and I think probably that he was. Again, we don't hear anything about Joseph when Jesus was the age of 12, and so he probably died when Jesus was at, a fairly, was at a fairly early age. But still, it wasn't common, even when a woman was a widow, to refer to Jesus or to, sorry, anyone as the son of a woman. I believe that their intention there was something a whole lot uglier, something a whole lot sinister. I think they were doubting his legitimacy. I think they were pointing to the fact that we don't know who your daddy is, but it ain't Joseph. So in the refusal to call him Jesus... Son of Joseph. I'm not going to say the word because it's the unnecessary cuss word, but you know the word. That's what they were calling him. You're born out of wedlock. Conceived out of wedlock. These people were ugly. They did not care for Jesus. They were slapping across the face, even in the way that they say this. They're saying, who are you? An ordinary man from an ordinary family. We know your family. They're right here. They're right here, sitting next to us. We've been with them. we played soccer with them. We've worked with them. We know who you are, and we know where you're from. Now, you tell us how you're going to do all these things. Tell us under what power, what authority have you done all the things that you've done. An ordinary man from an ordinary town, and he's a carpenter. Matthew says that he's the son of a carpenter. Both of those would have probably been true. Joseph would have been a carpenter. and He would have taught his son, Jesus, how to be a carpenter. And now the the, the Greek word is tecton. Now, tecton doesn't specifically mean a woodworker. It can mean a craftsman of any kind. And in that part of the world, a tecton probably would have been somebody that worked with both stone and wood. But there's a guy named Justin Martyr. He was a Christian apologist about the year 155. He says that oral tradition passed on says that Jesus was a maker of yokes, something that he would have made out of wood. And so it's accurate to interpret this as carpenter. Now, there wasn't anything necessarily abhorrent about working with your hands. Even amongst rabbis, it, it, wasn't, it was a good thing. It was a right thing. It was expected that men would work and then men would work hard. This wasn't an assault on Jesus because he was a hard worker. It was you're an ordinary guy with an ordinary job. You're just like us. You, work by us. you work next to us down at the plant. We sat down and ate lunch together. I know who you are. I know who your family is. I know where you're from. You're an ordinary man. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not these his sisters right here with us? And they took offense at him. The people at Nazareth, they knew all about Jesus. They knew his family. They knew his childhood. They knew his trade. They knew all the trivia. They could recite all the facts. They were familiar with Jesus of Nazareth. And in that familiarity, they took offense. They took offense at his words. They took offense at his works. They took offense at who he said he was. They took offense at what he taught. They took offense at what he demanded. They took offense at everything that he was and everything that he said and everything that he did because they knew him. Truly, familiarity had bred contempt. Perhaps they knew him too well. So because of this, the Scripture says that they took offense. To them, he was Jesus, the little boy born out of wedlock from a nowhere town doing a nowhere job with a nobody family. Scripture says they took offense. Escandalizanto is the word. Scandalon is the root word. It's where we get our word scandal from. Jesus was scandalous to these people. You didn't drive into Nazareth and see a sign, a big billboard up that said, Home of Jesus, the Son of God, welcome. They were scandalized. They were embarrassed of Jesus. They took great offense at him. They were ashamed. That's why they went to go take him home. He was embarrassing the family. He was embarrassing the entire family uh, town It's probably in part why they tried to kill him. We're gonna just stop this now People already don't think much of Nazareth and now you're out there running your head He was a scandal to him Truly, Jesus had come to his own and his own received him not because what we see playing out here in his hometown Points to the much grander picture of his rejection by Israel as a whole This is a, this is the kind of a broad-scale picture of what was going to happen how on the whole, his people were going to reject him. How God had come to his chosen people. And because he didn't meet their expectations, he didn't look the way they expected him to look. He was a scandal. He was an offense. They rejected him. Wait until they got a hold of the cross. You think Jesus' teaching? You think that his preaching? You think that his healing and his claims are offensive today? Wait until they hung on a cross. See, we look back through that prism now. We recognize that the way that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the way that he bought our freedom, the way that he dealt with our sin debt, it's all through the cross. So you didn't have to be from Jesus' hometown to be offended by him. You didn't even have to have seen Jesus face to face in order for him to be a scandal. We read about that in Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Colossians. Go ahead and turn, if you would, just turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Corinthians 1. Did I say Colossians? I meant Corinthians, excuse me. Turn, turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 1, if you, if you don't mind, because Paul is, Paul is speaking to the church there, and they're struggling. They're, they're struggling because the wisdom of the world is just coming against them. It's just attacking them, and, 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 and it's tempting to them, right? It's tempting to go after the wisdom of the world, because it's, it's, it sounds pretty, and it sounds intelligent, and it sounds maybe even at times godly to them, and so... He's he's calling them back to the gospel of the cross. He's saying, listen, the the cross of Christ is everything in this. It's everything. Hold fast. Don't go after the wisdom of the world. Hold fast to the cross of Christ because the world is not going to be able to accept that their Savior died on a cross. You don't celebrate men that died on the cross. Cursed men died on a tree. It was an abomination. It was despicable. It was detestable. It was an embarrassment. It was a scandal. It was an offense to the rest of the world. So you don't celebrate that. But even harder to swallow than that is the reality that you are so despicable in your sin. Your sin is so detestable before the living God that the only way he can deal with it is by nailing his son to a tree. allowing his son to become become a curse. We want to believe we're pretty. We want to believe we're mostly good. It's a scandal. And then that we're supposed to follow him and taking up our own cross, dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, following after this crucified Savior. It's a scandal. It's an offense. And so what we find there is that Paul uses that same word, scandalon. I'm, I'm reading from the 18th verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is there who is, excuse me, who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified—a stumbling block, a scandal, a scandal, an offense, a stumbling block to the Jew and falling to the, gentile, folly to the gentile. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What the Jews were looking for, just as the people in Nazareth, signs and wonders. Do you know why? Because signs and wonders make life better. They make more bread where there was less bread. They make people healthy where they were sick. They raise people from the dead. They make people see and they make people hear and they make people walk. They wanted more signs and wonders because it made their life better today. In addition to that, those signs and wonders matched up with their expectation of the Messiah. And their picture of the Messiah, of the Christ, was one that was going to come in with political might and set them free from the Romans. Again, making their life better today. The Greeks, they sat, sought after wisdom, worldly wisdom. They wanted to connect all the dots and figure it all out. Isn't this what the world demands today? We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We preach about an incredible sin problem. It is so detestable that we cannot overcome it in and of ourselves. That it requires the death of God's own son to overcome, to deal with it. And it's a stumbling block. It's detestable. They say, no, tell me how my life can be better right now. Tell me how you can fix my marriage. Give me a 10-point sermon on how to fix my marriage today. Tell me how to get rich. Tell me how to manage my babies. Tell me how to make my, better, my life better right now. Or they demand wisdom. Talk to us like the world does. Give me some of the world's wisdom and just mix in some Bible stuff. How about you just throw Jesus' name at the end of some worldly wisdom, and then we'll count that as church and go home. That's what they want. So that when we stand before them and we preach the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified, we preach the call to die to self, it's detestable. It's a scandal. It's an offense. It's a stumbling block. They hate it so what are we gonna do we're gonna give them what they want so that we ourselves are not viewed as an offense we're gonna give them what they want so they'll pat us on the back and tell us we're pretty Dear friends I need you to understand there's going to come a day in this country in this land where there's going to be very real pressure on us to preach that dead gospel that gospel which leads to death and has no life whatsoever so we determine today we're gonna preach the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ if that's what it demands? Or are we going to give in? Nobody likes to be offensive. You don't wake up in the morning, put on your best outfit, comb your hair, and go, I'm going to go offend some folks. But we carry with us an offensive message. We in and of ourselves, we are a stench to the world. We reek of something they don't want. And so to them, Jesus was, Jesus was a stumbling block, a stumbling stone, as Peter said, a rock of offense. And they knew all the trivia, they knew all the facts, they knew all about Jesus, but they didn't know him. They didn't know him. And they think they were offended today, wait until the cross. It'd be a great offense at that time. They just wanted signs and wonders and miracles and wisdom just like the rest of the world offered. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He responds with an old proverb. This wasn't just a religious proverb. Pagans would have had a proverb similar to this as well. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You see how he's saying it's everywhere I go. My town, my household, everywhere. And Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet all prophets pointing forward to him. He was the object of the prophecy. He was also the word of God. We read about it in Acts 3, 22 through 23. Peter says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That just like Moses, Jesus was the mediator of a covenant, but it was greater. covenant in his blood it was greater and higher and grander so that jesus was indeed a prophet but he wasn't just a prophet it was right for him to say prophets even in their hometowns they're not especially in their hometowns they're not received you know me too well apparently you're too wrapped up in your own paradigm and your own understanding of who i am even though all the signs were there have you ever met a perfect little boy before i don't think you have you've said yourself you've never seen anybody that Not Reuben. Is that what you just said? I knew it. Your grandbaby is not perfect no matter what you believe. (laughs) You've never met a perfect little boy before. And all the evidence is there. All in the teaching and in the preaching. And it just—it was there but they couldn't receive him. Couldn't receive him. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. It wasn't that Jesus was physically incapable. It wasn't that his power was sucked at him as soon as he crossed over the city line to Nazareth. It was that the people didn't believe. And the purpose in Jesus' miracles, the perfect purpose in his healing, was to call people to himself. It was to show them he was who he said he was and that his message contained the life that he said that it it contained. And these people had so hardened themselves. And so he wasn't going to do it. Much like chasing the people that had laughed out of that house, While he raised Jairus' daughter, he wasn't going to do miracles before him. But to prove that he hadn't somehow been zapped of his power, he did heal a few. Apparently there were some people there who believed, I guess. He healed a few, but they weren't going to see his wonders. You don't believe my words, you're not going to see my works. I didn't just come to impress you. I didn't come to beg you. I didn't come to wow you and amaze you. I came to show you that I am the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Your appropriate response is to fall down at my feet and do the things that I tell you to do and if you won't do that I'm not going to do any miracles here and so even what they had was taken away verse 6 and he marvelled because of their unbelief the people in Nazareth were astonished by Jesus and he marvelled at them he marvelled says so specifically that he marvelled at their unbelief Jesus had seen a lot of things during his earthly ministry A lot of detestable, despicable, remarkable things. And yet, as best I can tell, there's only two times that we read that Jesus marveled. Only two times. This, and then when he meets the centurion. Remember that there was that Roman military man, and he sends word to Jesus that his servant is sick and suffering greatly. And so Jesus, in his sovereignty, determines that he turns and he's going to go to this man's house to heal his servant. But, But the centurion finding out, he sends word back, and he says, Oh, no, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to even come into my house. I know what it is to be a man that has some level of authority and power. I know that all you have to do is speak, and my servant will be made well. And listen to what Jesus says, Matthew eight ten. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The only two times that I can find in all of Scripture where it says that Jesus marveled. It wasn't at the depravity of man. It wasn't how they treated each other or even how they treated him. It was about faith. It was about an outsider who had incredible faith. It was about insiders who had no faith. It was on the basis of faith. The lack or the appearance of faith caused Jesus to marvel. How could they not believe? They knew so much. They knew all the trivia. They knew about his teaching. They had heard about his miracles, and yet still they would not believe. And yet this outsider, this outsider, Find himself as an insider because of his belief, because of his faith. It wasn't that Jesus was caught off guard. This marveling wasn't that he was caught off guard. It wasn't that he didn't know that there was going to be no faith working for him. He knows that apart from the working of the Holy Spirit that these people couldn't believe, and yet still it says that he marvels. Dear friends, I think that as we come to this text, we can find both, we can find a warning and we can find an encouragement. I I, I think I'll begin with, with the warning. And, and the warning comes directly from the mouth of our Lord and Savior. If we look back at the parable of the lamp under the basket, you remember that he said these words Be careful how you hear. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is teaching this idea that we need to be on guard about how we hear. Because we see as Jesus consistently comes into close contact with people, these insiders these people that have all the benefit in the world, every opportunity anyone could ever hope for to know and see and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, and they walk away as lost as lost can be. And he's saying, be careful how you hear. That these people heard the teaching of Jesus Christ, and yet because they did not have ears that truly heard, they completely missed him. They knew about him, but they never knew him. That they heard just enough of Jesus Christ to get inoculated to the gospel. Do You know how inoculation works? You know, you probably do in this age, right? You know how vaccines work? That what they do is they take pieces of the virus or the bacteria and they inject it or, or something that mimics it. They inject it into you so that your body learns. And I got a nurse here, and so just don't even tell me how wrong I am here, to have that, But they, 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 they inject it into you, and then your body learns how to fight against that so that if the real disease comes along, your body knows how to respond to that, and then you become immune to it. There's so many people that they've received just enough Jesus or maybe a synthetic man, man-made Jesus. They've heard enough of the gospel or enough of something that sounds like the gospel that they've built up an immunity. They know how to fight against it. And you know, my parents both have that scar on their arm. Some, many of you probably in this room, I think they stopped giving the smallpox vaccine in like 72 maybe, something like that. But, but you'll remember that, 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 they've, they've got that they've got that vax or that particular vaccine. They've got that scar in their arm. I used to always ask my parents, what is that scar from? It was from a vaccine that we got when we were little kids. There are so many people out there believing themselves to be good and safe. When in reality, they're walking around just with a vaccine scar on their arm. A little card in their Bible. A membership at a church. They've been exposed to just enough gospel to build up an immunity to the real thing. They've been exposed to just enough Jesus, or even worse, a synthetic, man-made, pretend Jesus that they think they're good. They can't hear the real thing. They can't be affected by it. I believe that that's the kind of person that we read about in Hebrews 6. We read that it's impossible for them to come to repentance. They've been too close. They've had too much exposure. They've seen too many of the works. They've heard too many of the words. They know it too well. They can recite it for you. So as a result of that, they're immune, and they will never be saved. They will never be changed. But here's what's even scarier than that. That exposure to the gospel will not only harden our hearts, it will not only leave us immune, but it will store up wrath in eternity. I need you to hear me. Did you are exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you hear of his works, you hear of his words, that the more that you are exposed to him, the more wrath you are storing up for yourself in eternity. Here's the words, Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, remember his hometown? His home base? Woe to you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Hades for if the mighty works done in you had been done in sodom it would have remained until this day but i tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of sodom than for you do you understand for the hardened heart for the one that refuses to believe for the one that has been inoculated to the gospel you are storing up wrath for yourself as you continue to be exposed as you continue to see the working of the holy spirit As you continue to fall under the grace of the church and the blessings that God pours out upon you, to whom much is given, much will be demanded. Be careful how you hear. Jesus reveals this to us in Revelation. Revelation 3, 15 through 16. He he warns us against this lukewarm, vaccinated, churchy life. You know this scripture, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, would that you were either hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you, I will spit you from my mouth. Be careful how you hear, you don't have it in yourself to create new ears, I'm asking you to examine yourselves. I'm asking you not to walk into this place and just assume you're okay because you've sat in that pew for 20 years. I'm asking you to stand before the living God exposed and transparent and say, God, you know my heart better than I know my heart. Reveal it. Show me. I'm asking you to examine your own life and say, do I see obedience there? Do I see myself sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ and doing the things that he tells me to do? Do I find in my life a love for the brethren do I see change or have I been rocking along with the same lukewarm vaccinated churchy life for decades be careful how you hear and then the encouragement Jesus knew the reception that he was going to receive in his hometown he I don't believe he was caught off guard in the least scripture says that he knows the heart of men he knew exactly what was going to await him there and that's why he brought his disciples because he was on the verge of sending them out. That's, God willing, next week's text, is is he sends the 12 out to go out and do this work, and he was showing them, this is what awaits you. This is what awaits you. The world has hated me, they're going to hate you. I am an offense to them, you are going to be an offense to them. I have been rejected, you are going to be rejected. I have been persecuted, you are going to be persecuted. Do not expect that you are greater than your master. Do not expect that you're going to be be received in any different way. Do not expect that the gospel of Jesus Christ is any more palatable out of the mouths of fallen men than it is out of the Savior himself. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be hated. You're going to be spat upon. You're going to be persecuted. We're going to read next week how he tells us we're intended to respond to that. But I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus has told me, I'm doing it right when people hate my guts. The problem for a guy like me is I give people other reasons to hate my guts, too, and it's hard to sift through it all. It's I we to live lives that are above reproach, to seek to be, at, to, be, to be at peace with all men, to lay down our lives for the sake of those that would curse us and spit upon us so that they may come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that when I lay my, pillow down on, my head down on my pillow at the end of the day, I can go, man, a bunch of people hate me. Can I make sure that they all hate me for the right reason? because I'm preaching and teaching and trying to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's when you know you've done it right. You need to be prepared and you need to expect that this message is detestable. It is an offense. It is a stumbling block to those that are perishing. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that your word is not an offense to us. And it's not because we're the smart people or the pretty people Or the good people. It's because of the working of your Holy Spirit in us. Father, I pray that your Spirit would move in a mighty way this morning. There are most assuredly people here in this room that have not yet yet seen the beauty, the glory of your gospel. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes this morning, open their ears to hear it. We're also sure that there are... Some that have just been rocking along playing the church game for some time, pray that you would shake them loose. Father, I I am I'm not blind to the fact that I could very well be among those deceived. Father, if I am deceived, would you receive, would you reveal it to me? Would you bring us to life? But Father God, above all, we want you to be glorified. That is the purpose for all of creation. That is the purpose for what we do here this morning. So, Father, as we lift up our voices and continue singing. I pray that you would be glorified. I pray the words we sing would be pleasing to your ears. I pray that we would be changed as a result of them. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.